Welcome to this podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. It publishes original research and topical reviews on basic and clinical aspects of gastrointestinal sensation and motility, as well as brain-gut interactions. Okay. Welcome everyone to this month's podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. My name is Adam Farmer and I'm a gastroenterologist at the Wingate Institute in London. This month it's my real pleasure to welcome Professor Mira Waters. Mira works at the Translational Research Centre for Gastrointestinal Disorders at the Catholic University in Leuven in Belgium. Mira has been recently honoured by the United European Gastroenterology Organisation as a rising star based on a track record of producing international uh, quality research and developing scientific independence. So Mira, many thanks for joining us uh, on this month's podcast and congratulations to you and your co-authors on your paper entitled Effective Genetic Background and Post-Infectious Stress on Visceral Sensitivity in Citrobacter Rodentium Infected Mice. So could you provide me some background to the epiphenomenon that we know as post-infective IBS? Um, yes. Well, uh, first of all, Adam, I would like to thank you to discuss our work in this podcast. So, um, in post-infectious IBS patients, um, IBS symptoms actually develop after gastrointestinal infection, and they remain present even after the infection has fully cleared. So, unlike um, general IBS, which is a very heterogeneous patient population with uh, various symptoms, central and peripheral mechanisms that contribute to IBS and different comorbidities, um, this Post-infectious IBS patients, they represent a very well-defined subgroup of patients with a very clear established onset, and therefore it's the main interest of my um, research. So the majority of post-infectious IBS patients, they develop their symptoms after bacterial infection. For example, a Campylobacter jejuni infection, Salmonella or E. coli, but also viral or parasitic infections can trigger the onset of post-infectious IBS and we know, based on epidemiological studies and literature, that between 3 to 30% of individuals develop IBS following an infectious gastroenteritis. So you mentioned 3 to 30% of uh, patients after enteric uh, infection go on to develop uh, uh, chronic symptoms. Why do some patients develop these symptoms and some don't? Well, that's actually the the most important question in the field currently because we do not fully understand this uh, phenomenon. So from large outbreak studies, we know now that the general risk factors for um, post-infectious IBS include uh, merely the duration and the severity of the initial illness. So this means that individuals with a more severe and longer-lasting gastroenteritis are at higher risk to develop post-infectious IBS. But other risk factors are related to the pathogen itself. Like I said, a viral or a parasitic, parasitic infection, they um, give less risk for post-infectious IBS compared to a bacterial infection. And the type of the bacteria is also an important contributor to, to the risk to develop post-infectious IBS, like does a specific strain produce certain toxins. Um, on the other hand, there are also endogenous factors of the host that may be crucial. Um, we know, for instance, that gender and age are important predictors for the development of post-infectious IBS, in particular women of a younger age are at risk. And um, besides this, we and other groups found that psychological comorbidities, um, such as a degree of anxiety and depression, depression that an individual experiences at the time of the infection, correlates with the risk for post-infectious IBS. 
So for example, in a very large cohort of more than 1,000 individuals who completed questionnaires during an outbreak, we found that anxiety scores at the time of the infection actually correlated with the risk to develop post-infectious IBS one year later on. And um, this increased risk of patients with these psychological comorbidity um, for post-infectious IBS was partly due to an increased susceptibility to develop um, also infectious gastroenteritis. So what do we know about the molecular basis of post-infectious IBS? Well, um, the mechanisms underlying this persistent abdominal pain and these altered bowel habits um, following gastroenteritis is also not very well known. So currently, and this is mostly based on studies in um, general IBS, it is hypothesized that efferent nerve endings that um, in the gut that sense chemical and mechanical stimuli in the gut are persistently activated or even sensitized and thereby leading to aberrant pain perception. And this neuronal activation or sensitization can be mediated by um, mediators that are released by mast cells such as histamine and proteases or by um, pro-inflammatory cytokines that are released by the infiltrating immune cell in the intestinal mucosa. Um, several groups have already documented persistent microscopic inflammation in post-infectious IBS patients. Uh, for example, Robin Spiller already in 2002 showed that biopsies from patients um, who developed IBS after Campylobacter jejuni infection revealed increased numbers of um, enterochromaffin cells, D lymphocytes. Um, other groups showed increased mast cell numbers and increased release of these mast cell mediators. So could you explain uh, the difference between a Th1 and a Th2 immune response for our listeners, please? So um, the Th1, Th2 um, helper phenotype, it's a, it's a T helper cell phenotype, it's actually a reflection of the outcome of, of naive T cells that become activated during an infection. And based on the cytokines that are produced by T helper cells in an acute infection, we can distinguish various types of T helper cells, um, not only Th1 and Th2 cells, but also Th17. And recent studies um, published data on Th9 and Th22. But um, Th17 cells have recently emerged as mainly um, inflammatory properties involved in not only infection, but but merely autoimmune processes, and therefore our study focused more on the dichotomy between Th1 and Th2. So Th1 cells produce interferon gamma and IL-2, and Th2 cells produce the typical Th2 cytokines IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13. And um, due to these cytokines that they secrete, they are associated with specific immune responses. So intracellular pathogens, such as bacteria and viruses, are rapidly cleared by the presence of Th1 cytokines while um, Th2 cytokines are considered to protect actually against larger um, extracellular parasites such as helminths, and um, they're also more involved in allergic type um, responses. So what was the uh, hypothesis as you embarked on your study? So in our lab, we really want to understand why some individuals develop long-term symptoms and post-infectious IBS, while others do not, and which mechanism actually contribute to this persistent visceral hypersensitivity. So in this um, paper, we hypothesize that the Th1, Th2 um, immunogenetic background may contribute to the risk to develop post-infectious IBS. So um, based on this, we, we really anticipated that the immune response that an individual mounts against an initial infection may predict the outcome of post-infectious IBS. And therefore, <clears throat> we performed um, this study 
using um, different mouse trains for TH1, TH2 background, and we assess the development of visceral hypersensitivity as a marker for post-infectious IBS. And so, so what methods did you use in your study then? So um, we basically aim to, to mimic human post-infectious IBS, but then in a mouse model. So what we did is we infected uh, mice using Citrobacter rodentium. That's actually a bacterial strain that induces a mild colitis in rodents, and it's very similar to the human pathogen E. coli, from which we know that it induces post-infectious IBS in about 30% of infected individuals. Um, <clears throat> we used regular histology to assess the degree of colitis by, by standard scoring, and we used um, immunostochemistry to quantify infiltrating immune cells, and um, <clears throat> we also looked at inflammation using um, RTQ-PCR. What were the differences in the uh, two strains of mice that you used in your study? So the experiments for this manuscript were performed in uh, two different mouse strains, namely a C57 Black 6 and a BALP-C um, mouse model. So these black 6 mice, they typically produce predominantly Th1 helper cell responses together with high levels of interferon gamma, <clears throat> while the BALP-C mice, they lean actually more towards a Th2 predominant immune response with IL-4 and IgE production and, and mast cell activation. What were the key results from your study? So first of all, we showed that Citrobacter rodentium induced only a transient and mild colitis in both mouse strains with the peak of the infection at two weeks post-infection. And we noticed that, um, as expected, in the black six mice, merely the Th1 cytokines were upregulated, <clears throat> and these cytokines were, to a lesser extent, upregulated in BALP-C mice, while BALP-C mice had more expression of the mast cell mediator tryptase. So this confirms, actually, the dichotomy um, that we expected to see in these um, different mouse strains. But the main and for us rather um, disappointing finding was that the Citrobacter rodentium infection introduced only a transient visceral hypersensitivity that uh, was present only in the acute phase and it normalized at three weeks post-infection, so independent of the immunogenetic background. Um, however, the BALP-C mice, they revealed higher VMR responses, higher visceral motor pain responses, um, almost double the pain of black six mice in the acute infectious phase. And, the, and this increase in pain perception also lasted longer in the BALP-C mice compared to the black six mice. So because we know that stress initiates and also exacerbates IBS, um, we then studied if an acute stressor in the post-infectious phase could actually reinstall visceral hypersensitivity, and therefore we applied water avoidance stress. But one episode of um, acute water avoidance stress was not able to reinitiate long-term visceral hypersensitivity. So altogether, our results suggest that a Th2 predominant immunogenetic background can represent one of the risk factors for prolonged visceral hypersensitivity after an acute gastroenteritis. But clearly, other factors must be involved to develop um, the persistent and chronic visceral hypersensitivity as seen in um, post-infectious IBS patients. So what do you think the limitations of your study were? So first of all, the infection did not trigger long-term visceral hypersensitivity, and also acute stress did not reinstall visceral hypersensitivity in both mouse strains, so indicating that a bacterial infection per se does not induce chronic visceral hypersensitivity. And um, we think that psychological 
psychological comorbidity prior to the infection may actually be a crucial risk factor in the development of post-infectious visceral hypersensitivity. For instance, um, the group of Stephen Venner in Canada, they assessed the development of visceral hypersensitivity after an infection by patch clamping. So um, patch clamping is a technique to assess the excitability of um, sensory neurons as a marker for, for altered pain perception, actually. And um, this group found that um, an infection in the presence of chronic stress, so they applied um, stress prior to the infection, um, during the infection, and after the infection, and then they found an enhanced um, excitability of neurons that lasted up to 30 days. Uh, we did not test this protocol in biopsy mice, but we um, speculate that this effect may be more pronounced in biopsy mice than in black six mice. And another remark that we have to keep in mind concerns actually the mouse strains themselves, because um, besides the immunogenetic differences between black six and biopsy mice, uh, we cannot rule out other differences between these two strains that may be responsible for the difference in pain perception that we see. So, for example, um, it has been documented that biopsy mice show uh, more anxiety and depression-like behavior compared to black six mice. So what do you think the clinical correlates of your uh, study are? So um, we clearly found that an, an infection alone is not sufficient to trigger this long-lasting uh, visceral hypersensitivity, but nevertheless, a TH2 background um, seems to represent a risk factor for increased pain perception. And um, this is actually a bit in line with our um, recent outbreak study, so this is a large um, study with over 1,000 individuals where we found prospectively that individuals who mounted a TH2 um, cytokine profile at the time of the infection were prone to develop post-infectious IBS one year after the outbreak. <clears throat> However, it's still not known why these individuals mounted TH2 immune response against the pathogen while others do not. So this may be explained by the genetic makeup of an, of an individual, or on the other hand, um, the psychological um, comorbidities can be involved here. For instance, it's known that an acute stress, when a person experiences acute stress, it enhances actually TH1 um, immune responses, while um, chronic stress rather has a dampening effect on, on immune responses, thereby allowing more the allergic type of a TH2 immune response. So where do you think the knowledge gaps uh, lie in the field of post-infectious IBS at the moment, and, and how can we begin to resolve these as, uh, as we move forward? Um, so there are actually two main gaps, I think, in, in the current knowledge on post-infectious IBS. So first of all, what is it that makes some individuals susceptible to develop post-infectious IBS while others do not, even though both of them were exposed to the same pathogens? And I think that the understanding this um, this mechanism will help to identify individuals that are at risk to develop post-infectious IBS, and, and they may even require different treatments at the time of the infection. And second, I think it's um, crucial to identify the mechanisms that underlie the chronicity of this low-grade inflammation and mast cell activation that, that leads to persistent visceral hypersensitivity. Because up to now, it is generally believed that chronic low-grade inflammation involving T-cells and mast cells actually contribute to symptom generation, but it's not clear which factors or mechanisms can, can trigger and maintain this chronic um, inflammatory response. Um, for example, we also found increased B-cell numbers in the rectal biopsies of um, post-infectious IBS patients. 
other groups um, showed the same, for instance, Javier Santos groups. But um, then again, the antigens that are targeted by this aberrant humoral um, immune response are not known. So we can speculate that food antigens may be involved in IBS symptoms as uh, over 60% of patients report actually the onset or worsening of symptoms after meals. Uh, moreover, it has been shown that when you apply food antigens on the duodenal mucosa, it can evoke a local influx of um, inflammatory cells and also trigger um, increased secretion. So in the same line, um, there were actually antibodies, IgG, and um, titers found to be increased in IBS. So these titers were um, targeted common food antigens like um, wheat and beef and pork. And on the other hand, there are also increased IgG titers targeting um, bacterial flagella in the serum of patients with IBS and even more pronounced in post-infectious IBS patients. And Based on this, I think we can speculate that um, the aberrant immune response that is seen in post-infectious IBS patients may actually target microbial <clears throat> and uh, food allergens. Super. So thanks, Mira. So with that, I'd like to thank you and, and indeed your co-authors for a really excellent paper and for assisting in the podcast. I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. I look forward to welcoming you all again on another instalment next month. Further information about this paper can be found on the journal website. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and we look forward to welcoming you.